The Obald by Robert McMinn Chapter 20 Novotel Ronnie was unused to travelling long distances by car. His VW Polo was three years old but only had 12,000 kilometres on the clock, most of which had been on it when he bought it the previous year. With petrol, the price it was, very few people could afford to take frivolous journeys. He was always careful with money these days. The royalty checks were a decent source of income, but for how much longer? The music industry was always looking for ways not to pay artists. His fallback position was to dip into his savings already, ravaged by the banking crises of recent years. He set out across the bridge to the mainland in the early afternoon, having booked an overnight stop at a Novotel at Evry on the outskirts of Paris, about halfway distance. He was planning to take the journey in two steps of about five hours each, and to drive at a steady speed, hoping to keep the visits to the fuel pump at a minimum. He had had an odd week, not daring to think what this meeting might mean. He was amazed at himself for even remembering the meaning of a post-1945 building, but had no doubt that it meant what he thought it did. Perhaps the reminiscing he'd been doing with Lucy Baker had helped him recall the other postcard he'd received so long ago. As he drove, he perceived the weird, hollow feeling in his chest, his barely concealed contained excitement at the prospect of seeing Melody Midwinter again. She'd be close to 60 now, and he wondered if she, like him, was finding it hard to picture anything other than the 20-something isotopes of their respective selves. That was the thing about losing touch with people. They remained forever frozen at the age you last saw them, whether it was squinting into a camera on the last day of school, or walking away from you down a tube station platform. He knew he'd been creative with the truth when he'd explained his disappearance to Lucy. On the other hand, she didn't need to know about Michael Midwinter and the complicated web of surveillance and counter-surveillance Ronnie had found himself in back then. Nor did she need to know his very real fears about returning to the UK to live, not because he'd once fled the country on a false passport, but because he knew how thorough state surveillance had been 30 years before and feared it would have grown even more ruthless and efficient with each wave of new technology. He entertained himself in the car, with his phone playing music, displaying a map of his route and occasionally issuing terse instructions in an Irish accent. He started the playback where he'd left it the previous Saturday night, at the beginning of the M's, smiling at the alphabetical juxtaposition of songs beginning with the word Mama. He drove at a steady 130 kilometres per hour once he reached the motorway and was grateful that the weather was clear and the roads not terribly busy. The thing about France was, it was big and there were long distances between towns. In between, not much to look at apart from fields and wind turbines. After a couple of hours on the road, he stopped for a toilet break, a coffee and to stretch his legs. Before setting out again, he used the service station's Wi-Fi to email Lucy Baker, telling her briefly he was following a lead that might end up in the recovery of the tapes. What else could Lulu's message mean? It was dark by the time he reached the Novotel, 
and he ate a burger and fries in the nearby quick restaurant before turning in for the night. The hotel was the kind he liked, clean, anonymous, unpretentious. The shower pressure was good, and the room was the right temperature to facilitate sleep. He checked his email again. Lucy had replied, saying she had pitched a version of the interview with him to one of the bigger national newspapers. She said she was pitching it as an unfolding mystery and would love to add a postscript to the effect that the tapes had been recovered. The newspaper were interested, apparently, though Ronnie doubted they'd ever heard of him. Perhaps they weren't paying her. Nobody ever wanted to pay for content. Ronnie watched TV for a while and then turned it off and slept dreamlessly. He set out at dawn and drove the final half of the journey in about four hours, with one break at the fortified town of Langres, which was the first place he reached after leaving the motorway. Here he was able to fill his tank on cheaper supermarket petrol. The last two hours were a slog across country on the N19, passing through many frustrating villages where the speed limit dropped from 90 to 50 kilometres per hour and every other vehicle was a tractor. In one village, a sharp turn was blessed by a painted statue of the Virgin Mary, which Ronnie named in his mind as Our Lady of the Hairpin Bend. Eventually, he passed around Lure and was directed by his satellite navigation software onto the road to Ronchon. He was soon able to see the chapel of Notre Dame du Haut from some distance as the trees surrounding it had been artfully trimmed. It was around noon when he turned left near the centre of the small town and passed under the old railway bridge. The road up to the chapel was narrow and steep, winding through many unblessed hairpin turns and flanked on each side by tall trees. When he arrived at the tourist car park at the top of the hill, he realised that the ticket office was closed for lunch and wouldn't open again till two. There were two other cars in the car park but no people around. He pulled Lulu's postcard from his pocket and looked at the message again, finally realising that the odd squiggle under the signature X had turned the X into XIV or 14, possibly referring to 1400 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He set the alarm on his phone to wake him at 2, leaned his seat back as far as it would go and closed his eyes. Sleep came surprisingly easily. The last two hours had been hard. His body vibrated with the rhythm of the road and rocked him to sleep, dreaming about Melody again. When he woke, there were three more cars in the car park and one or two people around. He looked carefully but recognised nobody, not that he would have much of a clue what a 60-year-old Melody would look like. One couple was standing at the edge of the car park looking out over the countryside pointing out landmarks and comparing them to a printed map. What if she was one of them? Ronnie got out of the car, locked it and walked slightly stiffly over to the guichet. He paid the entrance fee, took a leaflet, then walked through the wooden gate and up the hill. Le Corbusier's chapel was stunning, in pristine condition and surrounded by carefully tended grass. He circled it twice, stopping to look at it from a variety of angles. He climbed up the short monument to the war dead and looked at it from the higher vantage point. He went and stood beneath the arrangement of bells outside. Finally, he went through the entrance at the rear and into the dark interior. The only light inside came from 
the arrangement of modern stained glass windows and candles. There were several tourists inside, walking around, staring upwards and talking in hushed whispers. A nun was telling off one of the tourists for using a camera with a flash. After looking around, a sense of peace overcame him, and he decided to just sit for a while. He had almost forgotten the purpose of his visit. He sat watching the candles burning at the front. He felt a tap on his shoulder. Peaceful, is it not? He turned around. A man, about his age, was sitting behind him, wearing an open-neck shirt and thick-rimmed glasses. Uh, you are Ronnie Collins, who used to be Simon Smith, the man said. He spoke English with a slight accent, but didn't sound French. That's me. Who are you? Uh, my name is Kurt. I am very sorry to have to drag you all the way across the country to this mysterious rendezvous. I have arrived here from Switzerland myself, but this is as far as I could travel and still return in time to where I need to be tonight. Come with me. I have your tapes. He stood up abruptly and left the chapel. Ronnie got up to follow legs, feeling shaky with nervous tension. The man, Kurt, led him down the grassy slope to the car park again, chatting about the beautiful Le Corbusier building. I must say, it was a good choice of meeting place, though not mine. An amazing construction. The proportions are perfect, the materials extraordinary. They reached the car park, and the boot of a large white Mercedes saloon popped open as they approached. When they reached it, Ronnie looked down and saw two things. The first was a cardboard box, possibly the same cardboard box containing the Ampex tapes that Melody had disappeared with 30 years before. The second was a Fostex multi-track recorder, the same model the band had used in 1983, covered in bubble wrap. First of all, your tapes said Kurt. I have a message for you, an apology, both for the delay and the stress caused by the delay. Ronnie wanted to ask where Melody was, but what kind of condition are they in, was the first question that came to him as he took the box from Kurt. Sometimes these old tapes get sticky, and I need to know if I'll have to bake them before using them again. I can assure you, they're in the same condition they were in when you lost them. You will have to take my word for it, of course, but they should play back as if they were recorded a few weeks ago. Okay, said Ronnie, sceptically. They didn't look any different, and there were no visible signs of damage or ageing on the boxes themselves. Go and uh, put them in your car and I will carry the other device, said Kurt. Ronnie walked over to his polo, unlocking the boot and placing the box of tapes inside it. An enormous feeling of relief flooded through him. He could see there were indeed the same tapes, with Jim's familiar handwriting on the masking tape labels they'd applied at the factory. Kurt followed and put the Fostex machine in its wrapping into the boot with a grunt. This is the present that goes with the apology, he said. Our friend understands the difficulty he might have in securing one of these machines in order to work with the tapes, so... We were sure to get hold of one for you. We had a technician look over the machine and it is in perfect working order. Though there is no instruction manual. I'll work it out, said Ronnie, 
wondering if he really could. Where is she? In Geneva. Unable to get away for the time being, but she felt a sense of urgency about these tapes and requested that I return them to you today. A sense of urgency? After 30 years? You will understand in due course the sense of urgency she refers to. I am grateful to you for undertaking the bulk of this journey to meet me at a somewhat more than halfway distance and for interpreting the message contained in the postcard. Our friend assured me that this would be the most effective way of convincing you to make such a trip. Now, we have passed the baton, as it were, from hand to hand, and it is for you to complete the journey these tapes started so long ago. He held out his hand for Ronnie to shake. The action felt automatic. Ronnie's mind was teeming with unanswered questions, but clearly Kurt wasn't going to be the one to answer them. He tried anyway, holding on to Kurt's hand as he shook it. You mentioned Melody was unable to get away. Why is that? Where is she, exactly? Uh, we work together at CERN. I can tell you this much. You know this place? The nuclear research facility? Indeed, yes. She is, I'm afraid, too ill to travel at the moment. We are confident she will make a full recovery, at which time I'm sure she will contact you again. Now I must go, as I need to be back at CERN in four hours. A very important test run. He turned and walked back to the Mercedes. Ronnie stood and watched him go. He then turned his attention to the box of tapes, opening each individual box to check its content. There was indeed no sign of dust, damp, sun damage or any other indication of the 30 years that had passed since he saw them last. At the bottom of the cardboard box was an envelope, addressed to Simon Smith. He opened it, and read it in the car park. Inside was a note, written in a shaky hand. After a few seconds, he had to reach into the glove box so he could dab his eyes in order to go on reading. Simon. Long time? For me, it feels like just a few days ago. How did I find you? Thanks to Wikipedia, and to the fact that you didn't bother hiding your IP address when you corrected the mistakes I put into the entry. From your IP address to your real address was not too hard a step. I am sorry for this, sorry you got mixed up in my shit, and sorry to continue this ridiculous mystery. For you, the journey has been long. For me, it has been painful and difficult. Mel was such a great help to me back then, and I want to thank her properly someday. I hope you're able to pass on my best wishes to her. We bought the Fostex machine on eBay, but a friend has checked it out. Your tapes have always been safe. Please do something with them now. I feel so bad that you were separated from them for so long. I will be in touch as soon as I can. Love, M. X. Ronnie read the note three times, then sat in his car and thought for a long time, weeping, trying to make sense of all that had happened. Finally, he dried his eyes and programmed the route planet on his phone to take him home. He used the phone to book an overnight stop in a different Novotel and set off. He texted Lucy Baker with the news. The tapes were in the back of his car.